Our scripture reading today is from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Amy, for reading that passage of scripture for us this morning. I hadn't noticed it uh, during the first service, but, but our benediction that we'll have this morning includes the word dominion in the same way that this passage, and it comes from 1 Peter 5, in the same way that this passage uses the word dominion. And when, when we hear the word dominion, one of the things that the scriptures are tell, reminding us of is the authority and the rule of Christ and his right to rule and to govern. And that comes in, it's an important thing for us to remember as, as we unpack this passage, that part of the reality of following Jesus is that we're following one who has authority over the earth. And we live in a time right now where it, it's, it's, it comes at a cost to even talk that way, uh, to, to suggest the idea that anybody would be in charge of all this besides me and myself and my truth, right? And this passage gets a little squirrely if, if, if we're going to try to, as a church, just say, hey, everybody's cool, it's all cool, everything's fine. You think what you think, other people think what they think. There's no real difference as long as it's your truth and you just believe it. Uh, we have a problem with a passage like this. And so we're going to wade into that uh, today and unpack what it looks like to live as a follower of Jesus Christ, which puts us really at odds in a lot of ways with a world that wants to have dominion in and of themselves. So we'll get to that. Um, it's been a few weeks since I've been in the pulpit. I've missed you all. It's good to be back. Uh, my daughter Kate and I went on a trip. We spent our time, we divided our time between New York City, London, and Amsterdam. This is a kind of a graduation tradition we have that's 
kind of messed around with COVID. The, the timing of it has all been a little squirrely, but we finally got to go and, and take this trip. And one of the things that uh, Kate wanted to do with me is go to art museums. She's a good kid. Good, good kid. And so we did. We went to, well, she and I went to six. I went to seven. Um, we went to two in New York, the Whitney and the Met. We went to two in London, the National Gallery in Tate Britain. And we went to two in Amsterdam, the Van Gogh Museum and the Rijksmuseum, which are right next door to each other. And, like, the thing about being over in Europe and looking at art is that it is everywhere. Uh, I saw over 200 Van Goghs. Not an exaggeration, I just saw a lot of Van Gogh paintings. Uh, the Van Gogh Museum is as advertised. It's four, four stories of nothing but Van Gogh. Um, and uh, Rembrandt paintings everywhere. We were actually in the home of a friend of mine in the London area, and I just remarked to him, I said, it's, it's you know, in, in the States, to, to be in the presence of like a Rembrandt is, is kind of like a day trip and you've got to go and kind of carve out the time and it's special and it feels like here you just turn around and, and there's a Rembrandt just you know around the corner and he goes funny you should say that come here and he took us over I kid you not he took us over to a, 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 a print event or a Rembrandt etching print front that one of his Rembrandt's pupils uh, printed there's and it's hanging in his living room like like they're just it's everywhere it's amazing um one of the things that was so that that's so um beautiful about art to me and you all know you know i'm a, it's just my thing uh is that uh, art is a vehicle for storytelling and we are people of stories we're people who gather stories, we have stories, we try to make sense of the world through stories. When Jesus taught, his primary method of teaching was through stories. There was a man who had two sons. And so we're people of stories, and one of the reasons that we've put art all over the walls in this place is because it's a form of storytelling. Much of it scenes from scripture, not all of it. Some of it's uh, scenes that the stories themselves help us understand the beauty of scripture and the truths of the Lord. Uh, but we have two in particular back there in the, in the back corner by my office door uh, that hang, one hangs above the other. And I, I got those two prints to belong together as kind of a diptych. Uh, a two, and a diptych is two paintings that go together to tell a story that the one alone can't tell. And so those two paintings over there, they're by the same artist, Rembrandt, and they are of the same person, Simon Peter. And I put them there because together they tell a story that is foundationally important for me as a pastor, as a communicator of scripture, as a follower of Jesus Christ. And they're, they're, it's a story that is vital for us if we want to understand what it means to follow Jesus. Those two paintings together, not just on their own, but together help us. Because the top painting is a painting of Simon Peter warming himself by a fire in the court of the high priests as Jesus is being led away to die. And Jesus is looking over his shoulder. He's in the top right 
part of the painting and he's looking over his shoulder at Peter as Peter is in the act of denying knowing him. So that's the top painting. The bottom painting, the second one, is of Simon Peter at the end of his life. And he is imprisoned in that painting for his proclamation of the gospel. And he is about to be, as the legend says, crucified upside down, which was his request to his executioners because he didn't believe that he was worthy of dying in the same manner as his Lord. And so those are the two paintings, Peter in the act of denying his Lord and then Peter at the end of his life about to go to his own death. And I like having those two paintings together because they tell an important story of what it means to follow Christ in this life. Our calling to follow the Lord is a call that transforms us. It is meant to change us. We're not meant to be the same at the end of our lives as we were when Christ first called us. We are meant to change. And what that means is to become a follower of Jesus Christ does not require us to be well-assembled people on the front end. It doesn't require us to be people who have been vetted and somehow found worthy of being loved by God. In fact, it's precisely because we have it in us to deny him, it's precisely because we have it in us to live in constant fear of this world that we would follow him at all. It's because we recognize we have a great need. And not everybody in this world recognizes that we have a great need. And so this is already a part of departure for those who follow Jesus and those who follow the world. Part of the challenge that I'm feeling as, as, a, as, as a guy preaching this sermon right now is I have a strong aversion to framing the Christian life as an us versus them sort of affair. I don't think for a second that Christian people have an enemy in other people. I think that we have differing values I think we have responsibilities for engaging the world in ways that promote things to be true, good, and beautiful. I believe that we have enemies. It's just not other people. And so part of the challenge, I'm just confessing to you right now, is this passage does say, yes, but there is still a difference between Christians and people who don't follow Christ and what it means then for us to live in this world. Peter talks about this in this passage. He talks about a change that happens in the life of a Christian and how that change often comes by way of suffering, which has been a theme that's been running through this passage, through this letter. We've talked about it almost every week. We're going to talk about it again next week. But he says it in verses 1 and 2. He says this. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For, whatever, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. What does that mean? Is he saying that when you suffer and cease from sin, is he saying that suffering just makes it so that you're not a sinner anymore? 
It can't be what he's saying because in other places in this letter, he's warning us against sin, even as he's talking to people who are suffering. What's he saying? It's very practical and it's something that anybody who has sinned and suffered can, can say, yeah, that's the case. It, it, what he's saying is this. He's saying sin itself produces suffering. And the suffering that sin produces has an impact on our willingness to continue in that sin. So when he says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, he's talking about the impact of our willingness to sin based on the understanding of the suffering that that sin produces in our life, which we discover when we commit that sin and then the suffering follows. And then we look at it and we say, I can't continue to live like this. So it's the journey of, of addicts on their way to recovery, right? Is that, is that you think I can do this I can medicate in this way and everything's going to be fine until it's not fine and the world is falling apart. And then you begin to understand, no, if I continue in this sin, the suffering is just too great for the sin to even be worth it. I need help. I listened to a sermon this week. Uh, Something I do sometimes when when I feel like, so I'm coming back from vacation, my head's in a million places, a lot going on. And I'm reading this passage, and I'm having a hard time seeing it as a whole. I'm having a hard time getting a vision for, okay, what's, uh, how, can, how can I get, a, get my arms around this passage? Sometimes when I'm in that frame of mind, I will listen to somebody else preach a sermon on this passage. I'll go online and find somebody. So this week I went and found Sinclair Ferguson, his sermon on this online. And I'm just telling you right now, I am borrowing liberally from things that he said. So don't accuse me of plagiarizing if you've heard Sinclair Ferguson's sermon, because I'm telling you right now, he and I wrote this sermon together. (laughs) But there's an idea that came from the structure of his sermon, something he said that I really wanted to kind of start us with, because I think it really breaks it down. This is me paraphrasing, but he was saying that throughout the Christian life, or really any life, anybody who lives a life on this earth, we're often presented with a choice, sin or suffer. Sin or suffer. You face some situation that could lead to some kind of suffering, and you realize, I could avoid the suffering, I could alleviate the suffering if I sin. I could lie, right? The question is, what will you do? Will you sin Will you choose to sin or will you choose to suffer when presented with that? Notice how Peter unpacks this idea. He doesn't present it as just some kind of binary choice. Like you can either sin or you can either suffer. Instead, what he's saying is there was a time, saying this to the church, there was a time when you used to live according to human passions. You chose sin. It's what you did. And as a result of that, you suffered for it. The consequences of sin produced more suffering in your life, and you lived it, and you knew it, and you know it still. Part of the journey of obedience is learning about the consequences of sin, and then putting the understanding of that suffering to good use. When I lie, and it betrays the confidence of people that I'm meant to be in community with, and they're meant to be a support system for me, it breaks it down. And so I have to learn the art of confessing that 
and seeking reconciliation and rebuilding of that community. And then I don't ever want to do that again because I, cause, cause I, I lose too much. That's the idea, right? That the suffering, the suffering that comes from walking out of step with Christ has something to teach us about the truth of the sin that we choose, which is a mercy of the Lord. It's that he even works redemptively in our sinning by saying, okay, there's going to be consequences for this where you're going to learn why it's a sin. But what Peter is saying here is he's saying that is something that this world won't understand. Neither will it want to. He says, in fact, it's not just that the world doesn't understand, it's that much of the world will revile you for not joining them in their sin. He says it this way in the continuing verses, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. What's going on there? What Peter is saying is he's saying, since Christ suffered, know that following him means you will suffer too. And then he says, arm yourself with that thinking. Know that. In this world you will have trouble. Jesus said, people will hate you because of me. Arm yourself with this reality. It's coming. It's true. It's here. And yet, we are meant to be peculiar people. We're meant to be strangers. That's how Peter opened this letter, right? He called the church elect exiles. In other words, he's saying to us, you're not at home here. We belong to another kingdom. We live in this world, but we belong to another kingdom. This world will tell us that this is all there is. So what we should do is we should chase after all the pleasures that this world affords us. Sensuality, drunkenness, all the things that Peter lists in this passage. But our calling as citizens of another kingdom is not simply a calling to just say no to wild parties. Like that's not God's will for your life is just to go through your life saying no to wild parties. His calling for us is to live as people who understand that we are waiting for the life to come. We're waiting for it. And so Peter says, when you do not join this world in these things, they will be surprised. And the reason they'll be surprised is because they will think, no, but this is all there is. And your reluctance, your resistance to join in will not only surprise them, but it will cause them to revile you. It will fuel an anger. Why? Why? Ah, this is important for us. This is important for us to understand and to think through. Because even as Christians, we can experience this. When somebody lives in a way that undermines or contradicts a way of living that we're looking at and saying, no, it needs to be this way. And we know that it really won't work out and we see other people living in the freedom, being free from that kind of presumption and burden, we'll get mad at them for that. What is happening here? Well, here's what we need to understand. We as people, everybody in this room, everybody in this city, everybody in the world, we give ourselves to faith systems. Everybody has one. 
Everybody has a system of belief. We have a way that we view the world. Everybody. No one is exempt from this. Every person walking the face of this earth has embraced a faith, a view of this world that they follow with their whole hearts. Some believe that this is all that there is, this world, as it is. And so what do we do? We eat, we drink, we be merry, for tomorrow we're dead, right? Some of us believe there is no baseline truth, we just make it up as we go. I am completely free to just make it up. I don't have any inherent worth or dignity except for the, inherent, except for the worth and dignity that I supply. I don't have an identity except for the identity that I declare to the world. I don't have anything that I haven't built or made up. And so we have this idea that from our own identity, we're we're to relate to others, that that we, we form our own identities and how we relate to others, how we use our time. And we come to this idea that none of it ultimately matters that much. And so we're just biding our time here, trying to do the best that we can until we reach the end. And so just indulge, indulge yourself. Understand that is a faith system. That's a system of belief that you're staking eternity on, that you're staking your life on, right? And here's the thing. The stakes of that faith system, a faith system that says it's just mine to make up from scratch, the stakes of that are every bit as high as the faith system of the person who puts their trust in Jesus and seeks to follow him. Because you're betting eternity on it. You're betting your life on it. And so if you go through this life denying the reality of God, denying the reality of sin, denying the idea that something here is profoundly broken and my heart's desire and longing is for peace. And, and we just, we deny all that. We deny a need for reconciliation and redemption and grace. And then we live according to all those denials. What if you're wrong? What if you're wrong? What if you know that you're wrong? What if you know that your belief system, if you had to be completely honest, is one that you've just made up? That you have no reason for believing it? It just is the one that the rest of the world wants you to have. What if you know that you're wrong on a spiritual level because you see that feeding your appetites has not produced peace for you. Well, then you come to be a person who knows something is missing and everything that you've tried within your own belief system has failed and yet you refuse to bow your knee to your creator. And so what happens as a result is the life that you've experienced feels hollow and you're trying to fill it and so you try to just indulge but the more you indulge, the hollower it gets. And then you encounter somebody who says, actually, it's, we're sinners in need of grace, in need of redemption. We have to confess this. We have to acknowledge this before our creator. We have to follow. We have to obey. There's somebody who has dominion over me. The follower of Christ is different. 
not just in our conduct, but in our, but in our view of what we're even doing here in this life, in the first place. We're not just biding our time until we die. We're not here just to try to get as much pleasure as we possibly can. As long as we're in this world, we're going to seem strange to those who live as though this world is all that there is. And why do people find us strange? Why do people find Christians strange? It's because there's this belief that the idea of being alive is to have a good time, to have as good a time as you possibly can, and they think they're having a good time by pursuing after all of these pleasures. But here's the kicker. They know. Because sin produces suffering, they know that it's a painful charade. And so their consciences are seared. Because it's exposed the brokenness of a belief system that they've wrapped both of their arms around and it's failing. And so they can't understand the world Christians live in. Why we don't just chase after the same pleasures in the same ways for the same reasons. And then in finding us strange, they find us offensive and they heap abuse on us because of guilty consciences. And again, I can't reiterate this enough, Peter knows he's not writing to Christians who are doing this perfectly. He's just saying to have a conscience that you need redemption and that suffering follows sin and to live that way in this world is going to be deeply offensive to people who are saying, no, I will have dominion over my own life and I should be able to make it work out because it won't work out. It never works out. Peter goes on to say this. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Another important reminder from Scripture. It's not just that non-Christian people will be judged by their creator. It's that all people will be judged by their creator. All of us. Christians don't get to sidestep being judged before the throne of God. That's the whole point of following Jesus. In the future, we will all give an account of our lives. We will stand before God as our judge. What Christianity says is that when we do, our faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross will make it so that when we stand before God as our judge, we will stand robed in the righteousness of Jesus. It won't be because we were better. It'll be because we are robed in the righteousness of Jesus. As Ferguson put it, he said, Christ will stand with us, turn to the Father, and say, Father, I am not ashamed of him. I am not ashamed of her. As followers of Christ, then we live in response to this grace. That's our calling, to live in response to this grace, to respond to the grace, the mercy, the membership that we have as citizens of the kingdom of God. And so this affects then how we look at the world. 
and how we look at the pleasures that this world affords. It doesn't mean that we don't engage in anything that brings us pleasure. Of course we do. It's one of the gifts of being alive. But it means that we can enjoy pleasures with all their goodness and with all their limitations without needing them to satisfy our souls, without needing them to be everything. We can engage with the pleasures of this life as things that awaken deeper appetites rather than needing them to satisfy the appetites that we already feel now. But it means we're going to live differently. And it means that we're going to be offensive to people just by nature of acknowledging our need for Christ to have dominion over us. And so, Peter turns from this to talking about the importance of community. It's going to be hard to live this way, so you need each other. You need each other. He calls us to care well for our church communities. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied graces. And then he goes on to kind of talk about specific gifts that we have. But what is he saying? He's saying use the community that you've been given as a support as you follow Jesus. Lean into these relationships and friendships. Here's one of the things that I love about this church is for so many of you, I can't think about your family without thinking about another family or two because you're units, right? We're kind of out the Spring Hill way. We've got a few where I just look around and I just think, I can't think about this family without thinking about at least two other families, maybe three, maybe four. Because I can't tell where one of them ends and the other family begins because they're like that. And that is what the Lord has given us in the church. In this world, you will have trouble. Take heart. I have overcome the world. He's given us each other. He's called us to live in community with one another. It's part of his design that our lives would be knit together. He says it this way, just keep on loving each other earnestly. Love covers a multitude of sin. You're going to get sideways with your people. The closer you get to them, the more they're going to know about you, the more opportunities you're going to have to annoy each other, to say things and have to retract and say, I'm so sorry, I don't know what I was thinking when I said that to you. That was just really uncaring. Will you forgive me? And your friend says, of course I forgive you. I love you. Guess what? That suffering that just happened in that friendship made that friendship stronger. The Lord is so good to give us to one another. Keep loving one another earnestly. Covers a multitude of sin. Show hospitality. Welcome people in. Bring them into your life. Use your gifts to serve. And when you're given a choice, choose to suffer instead of sin. But do so knowing that you don't have to walk alone in that. I want to conclude with something that I brought up here at the beginning of this sermon, and that is to return to the author of this letter and to remember who's writing these words. 
Who's writing these words about how to live and move and have our being when we're presented with the choice between sinning or suffering? Simon Peter, here is a man who knew what it meant to have to choose between suffering and sin. And he knew what it was to choose sin and the implication of it. When accused of being one of Christ's disciples by a child in the courtyard that night as Jesus was being accused and beaten and led away to die, Peter chose to sin in order to try to avoid suffering. Luke's gospel tells us that they made eye contact. That when Peter denied him the third time, they made eye contact. And he went out and wept bitterly. Instantly, his choice to sin instead of suffer produced what? Suffering. And now what is he doing? He's saying, when you're given the choice to suffer or to sin, I'm telling you. You will be tempted to choose sin over suffering. But what will happen is that sin will just lead to more suffering. But the beauty of it is that the Lord will use that suffering to change the way you approach that sin. That the Lord does that instead of just kick us to the curb when we choose sin over suffering is love. It's love. I mean, that sin that Peter committed, I swear I don't know the man. So much seemed lost. And yet the irony is this, the collapse in that friendship happened as Jesus was going to the cross to die for sinners like his friend Simon Peter. As Peter was failing his Lord, Jesus was redeeming him. When Jesus rose and appeared to Simon Peter and reinstated him, Peter's life was then set on a course that would lead to this place. It would take him from the top picture to the bottom picture, where he was now an apostle giving his life away as a fisher of men, as a friend of Jesus, a calling for which he would die. And Jesus even told him it would happen. He told him at the end of John, John 21, he said this, he said, when you're old, Peter, you're going to stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after this, he said to him, follow me. And here he is. There he is. This is Peter in the bottom painting in chains for the gospel, for the love of his friend, choosing now suffering. Why? Because it's the way that he is being a steward of God's varied grace. What taught him? What taught him to choose suffering over sin? Part of the answer, friends, is that suffering taught him. Suffering from the sin he chose. That coupled with the grace of the one he sinned against. It's beautiful. Henry Nouwen said it this way about the return of the prodigal son. Our brokenness has no other beauty but the beauty that comes from the embrace that surrounds it. Will you be ready to be faithful to Jesus when sin appears?
what teaches us to be faithful. Part of what teaches us to be faithful is the suffering that comes from sin. So remember the cross. Remember the cross. We don't live in fear of man. We live in response to grace. This world will not understand this, but it is the only way to live in a world like this, is to live in response to grace, is to live in response to what Christ has done. It's the only way that can make any sense of living in a world like this. Remember the cross of Jesus Christ. Remember the cross of Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the challenge that it brings us to understand that as Christians, we're not called to be people who just have kind of this private belief system, but it doesn't really bear any recognition that it's not something that anybody would ever notice. I think of C.S. Lewis who asked the question, if you were accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to prove it? And Father, Part of what you're committed to in our lives through the, through the indwelling of your spirit is, is transforming us. Not just transforming us from, from bad habits or sins, but transforming us into the likeness of Christ, making us more and more like Jesus. And so, Father, we thank you for that. And we ask that you would give us a posture of wanting that, to want to receive that. Humble us, Lord, for all those places in our lives where we insist that we have dominion. And Lord, teach us what it means to relinquish that control and to trust you to be good and to trust you to shepherd our hearts. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.